Yeah, good evening. Uh, my name is Tandika Mkandawire from LSE. It uh, gives me great pleasure to chair this meeting. Uh, we have a, a wonderful guest, Lord Boateng, and um, a very familiar figure in, in British politics. Um, but before I, I, I say more of that, I would like to say some, one, one thing. For those who, who use Twitter, the, it's LSE. Hash LSC Boateng. For those who are Now, Lord Boateng is a. I'm waving at them too. Okay. He's been a member of parliament and a cabinet minister. And he has also been a chief secretary of treasury. And he became a member, he was introduced as a member of the House of Lords in July 2010. The theme of the talk is adding value in Africa, some reflections from the grandson of a Ghanaian cocoa farmer, which of course takes us back to Ghana. Uh, for my generation, um, Ghana was an extremely important uh, experience. The, the Ghana, Ghana's independence was, was really a very important experience, and I often surprised my Ghanaian friends by uh, my knowledge of, the, of Kwame Nkrumah's entire cabinet, yeah. uh, which included People like Badema, Kojubotsio, Krobetusei, and of course, Kwaku um, Barting, the father of our, our speaker there. I was then working for a newspaper in Malawi, and our first printing press came from the Ministry of Information of Ghana. So I do have links to him. He's been very active civil rights in the civil rights movement, and in fact, when he was elected uh, MP for Brent South, he declared and famously declared, today, Brent South, tomorrow, Soweto. Uh, 20 years on, he was to become the ambassador, of, uh, the high commissioner to South Africa, uh, which is close, quite close to Soweto, after all. And he's been very active on, 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 uh, on the rights the struggle, especially, including, uh, famously, also on that Every Child Matters uh, campaign. He's a very, very passionate advocate of, 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 uh, of supporting Africa and has maintained Africa very close to his heart. So I'm very privileged to, int to introduce you, Lord, Lord Martin. He has, he has to run away from us yet. Uh, one hour is one hour maximum, and he has agreed generously to accept questions after half an hour presentations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Prof. It's great to be with you here this uh, evening at the LSE. Uh, we meet at a uh, critical time for Africa and for the wider world, uh, a world that needs uh, Africa not just uh, for its uh, natural uh, riches, 10% uh, uh, of the world's uh, oil production now and uh, rising, uh, massive untapped reserves of uh, gold uh, and uh, precious uh, metals for its uh, abundant and fertile uh, land mass, uh, but also and perhaps especially uh, for its peoples. Uh, One billion set to be two billion by 2050 uh, uh, and for its, its growth. Uh, Africa has the world's 
youngest uh, population, with two-thirds uh, of uh, that population under the age of 25. So the potential is uh, obvious. It's a continent that needs the wider world and its markets and its capital, but uh, at the same time, uh, that need is replicated by the uh, developed world uh, who need uh, what Africa has to offer, uh, not just uh, its mineral uh, resources, uh, not just uh, its commodities and raw materials, but also its peoples uh, and the markets that they uh, present uh, for what it is that the world has to offer at this time. Uh, but if we are to have uh, a partnership, and if those uh, partnerships are to work uh, for uh, Africa, then they mustn't uh, replicate the old discredited models uh, of uh, exploitation. Uh, and uh, frankly, uh, appropriation that have all too often characterized uh, the relationship uh, between uh, the developed world uh, and uh, Africa. And I want to talk in the course of uh, this uh, evening uh, with you about partnerships, uh, about partnerships uh, for change, about partnerships that are not simply driven by the dictates uh, of uh, the marketplace, that don't just simply involve uh, the uh, private uh, sector uh, alongside uh, the public sector in the usual uh, way, uh, but also partnerships that have uh, academia, that have civil society, that have grassroots community uh, organizations uh, at uh, their uh, heart, and partnerships too uh, that work uh, for that uh, new uh, generation uh, that is upcoming uh, in uh, Africa, partnerships that span uh, the generations, that reach out to youth with the uh, promise of a renewed focus on skills, education, and capacity building with an emphasis, I would argue, a necessary uh, emphasis uh, on innovation, uh, science, and technology. Uh, and all of that uh, within the context of uh, the Millennium Development Goals, uh, which are to be uh, reached uh, by 2015, but that clearly, very often, and in the main, won't be. Uh, and the debate that must now take place about the next generation of MDGs, if there is one, and the post-2015 agenda. But first of all, a reality check as to where we are now. And the good news is that Africa has emerged uh, faster and in a better shape than many believed uh, possible from the uh, global uh, recession uh, as was and stands in good stead to confront uh, the reality uh, as it emerges of a double dip global recession if that is what we are to have. The reasons uh, for that uh, are uh, clear it seems to me. Uh, 
the uh, HIPIC uh, and G8-inspired uh, debt uh, write-offs have seen uh, a wholesale uh, decline uh, in the crippling debt servicing uh, that characterized uh, the economic predicament of so many countries uh, in Africa. There has been uh, a marked improvement in macroeconomic uh, management uh, in many uh, African uh, countries, uh, and that is something that is uh, remarkable in itself in the way in which reform has been embraced uh, in many countries in sub-Saharan Africa, and I shall talk a bit more about that uh, later. And there has been a general and marked improvement in uh, budgetary uh, discipline, so much so that the uh, IMF uh, uh, forecasts for growth uh, in Africa, even with the impact uh, of the recession on growth uh, in uh, 2011, uh, have actually resulted uh, in uh, an average growth that is above uh, 5%. Uh, Ghana, Nigeria, Angola, Kenya, Zambia, and Mozambique are all now uh, members of the uh, 7% uh, club set if this level of growth is uh, maintained to see their GDP double uh, in the next uh, decade. And at the same time, the trends in both governance and conflict uh, resolution have been uh, largely uh, positive uh, with an enhanced durability and capacity on the part uh, of African institutions to resist both uh, external and uh, internal uh, shocks. Uh, and fears, uh, certainly in the course of the early stages of the recession, that the crisis in global capital markets would trigger a total collapse in invest investment flows and indeed in, remiss in remittances simply haven't uh, been uh, realized. So yes, there has been uh, some uh, decline uh, and uh, some uh, stalling uh, in and of the momentum that was uh, on the way prior to uh, 2008, but nevertheless, the increased engagement between Africa, the Middle East, uh, and uh, Asia, uh, the s sign of the new uh, uh, alignment uh, of global uh, forces uh, has had uh, a positive impact uh, on uh, many uh, sub-Saharan African economies. So there is this uh, sense uh, of Afro-optimism in the markets, fueled by the promise uh, uh, to foreign direct investment of higher uh, ret returns and better still uh, to, uh, to come. The challenge, however, remains of sustainability because for very many people on the ground in Africa, the realization of the Millennium uh, Development uh, Goals uh, remains uh, for many uh, all too remote uh, a uh, possibility. But overall, uh, there is much that we can rightly and uh, properly uh, celebrate. However, we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't get over uh, optimistic because uh, the challenges uh, are real. And if the uh, 
next generation uh, of Millennium Development Goals post-2015 in whatever shape uh, they appear if the post-2015 agenda uh, doesn't uh, recognize the outstanding uh, issues, then we are not going to see uh, uh, the realization of the massive potential that the continent has in ways that actually benefit uh, the uh, vast majority of uh, people uh, on the continent and don't simply perpetuate uh, the continued enrichment uh, of uh, a uh, elite uh, because growth uh, does not necessarily uh, bring uh, equality uh, of opportunity or equality of outcomes uh, for uh, the peoples uh, of uh, Africa in terms of their life uh, experience and uh, their own uh, access to uh, sustainable uh, resources. So we need to confront uh, the challenges that we face on the continent and in our relationship uh, in the developed world with the continent. And I just want in the course of my observations this uh, evening to highlight uh, a number uh, of uh, those. And I think uh, I would uh, begin uh, by uh, referring you uh, to uh, 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 some words of someone whose picture I noticed was in the uh, green room where I had my uh, tea and uh, chocolate biscuit prof uh, prior uh, to uh, uh, joining you uh, this uh, evening. There was a picture of uh, President Kagame uh, of uh, Rwanda. Uh, when he came to the LSE recently. And he, he said something which I think is, is important. We in Africa must either begin to build our scientific and technological training cap capabilities or remain an impoverished appendage to the global economy. And I want to say just a few words, if I may, about that issue uh, of science, technology, uh, and innovation. Conscious uh, as I am, of where we are this evening uh, at uh, the uh, LSE, a global uh, institution uh, of higher uh, education uh, whose uh, record uh, on these issues is uh, second to none. Because the stark truth is that Africa lags behind uh, both the post-industrial north and the rapidly emerging science and technology fueled economies uh, of the East and the BRIC countries in science and innovation and is in danger of falling still further behind. Uh, recent studies show that the levels of technological readiness and innovation capacity of African country, countries is low compared to the rest of the world. So Africa isn't in fact in a state of technological readiness to seize the opportunities presented by the rapid pace of globalization and scientific and technological development. Investment in R&D and research and development tends to be short term with little uh, investment in building or improving R&D infrastructure leading to low quality uh, institutions and there is a lack of dedicated institutions with an emphasis on publicly funded research, development, and innovation. And national governments in Africa's capacity for science, technology, and innovation policy making are weak. Too few African countries have a budget line for science, technology, and innovation, 
and uh, let alone a, a, a national strategy in place with key deliverables for spending uh, the resource that is available. Industry and university collaborations are few and far between. Skill shortages are the norm in both science and engineering, and there's too little incentive for those with skills either to remain on the continent or indeed to return to the continent, not least uh, in the absence of investment in higher education by central government. So you have a, mitch, a, a mismatch of science and technology policies and developmental goals and the failure to effectively promote coordinated regional approaches to science and innovation. Now, I am the uh, grand grandson uh, of a uh, printer uh, from Hoxton in the East End of London on my mother's side and a cocoa farmer uh, in uh, Achim in the eastern region uh, of Ghana uh, on my uh, father's uh, side. Uh, I'm happy to return on a a future occasion prof and talk uh, about uh, uh, industrial uh, relations and uh, uh, community uh, activism uh, uh, in uh, urban uh, Britain uh, but today I'm going to concentrate if I may uh, uh, on my uh, paternal uh, side uh, and share with you some of the lessons I learnt uh, because I learnt lessons at the feet of both uh, uh, men and uh, their uh, uh, wives to share with you some of the lessons I learnt uh, as a grandson of a Ghanaian uh, cocoa farmer. And the first actually was uh, this. It was and is this family uh, farm because that's how cocoa growing is organised uh, in uh, the Gold Coast and Ghana, as was Ghana uh, as, as is, a, a medium-sized family uh, farm. Uh, in uh, Achim, in a place called Achim Tafo, Old uh, Tafo. Uh, it was uh, a farm uh, immediately uh, next door uh, uh, to uh, the uh, Cocoa uh, Research uh, Institute uh, uh, in uh, Ghana. It was uh, the West African Cocoa uh, Research uh, Institute. It was immediately next door to the West African Cocoa Research Institute because the land of the West African Cocoa Research Institute was uh, appropriated from my paternal grandmother. Uh, that is also part and parcel uh, of the legacy of empire, appropriated uh, without compensation. And this isn't by way of airing a claim today, uh, but it is, a, it is a recognition of the reality of how it came to be that my grandparents' farm was next door to this uh, world-class uh, uh, centre of research and development in the production uh, of cocoa that served not just uh, the Gold Coast, uh, but uh, the whole uh, uh, region. The reality is uh, that that uh, research institute has been sadly neglected over uh, many uh, years. It is no longer the West African uh, Cocoa uh, Research Institute. It is the Ghana Cocoa Research Institute. It does good work, but is notoriously and shamefully, in my view, uh, underfunded uh, to this day. Although that process, I'm glad to say, is beginning uh, to be reversed 
by a development that I will uh, come to uh, later. But that was the first lesson uh, I learned uh, from my paternal uh, grandfather, the Achim cocoa farmer, is that actually if you are to increase uh, yield, if you are to promote uh, innovation, then research and development in agriculture is absolutely key uh, to, that, to that process. And that requires investment, investment in higher education, investment uh, in the uh, development uh, of agriculture. Secondly, my uh, paternal grandfather was, educate, was able to educate my father uh, and uh, his uh, uh, siblings uh, out of the proceeds of that uh, cocoa farm. Uh, and there were, what, some five uh, uh, children uh, uh, in, uh, uh, in, in, in all who were educated in this way. He was able to educate my father just down the road at King's out of, yes, I, I dare mention that word here in the LSE, uh, 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 he was able to educate my uh, uh, father at, at, at King's and at uh, Gray's, uh, Gray's Inn. Uh, he was able to do that out of the proceeds of that cocoa farm. Uh, and I wonder how many uh, African farmers today would actually be able to do that. Now, that was not simply uh, because cocoa was, during that period, fetching a, a high price and he produced high-quality cocoa, although both those things were actually true. It's also true that at that time, it was possible for my paternal grandfather, the Achim cocoa farmer, to transport his, co his cocoa beans directly by rail link from uh, old uh, Tafo uh, to the port at Takaradi. There was a fully functioning rail railroad that considerably reduced his transportation costs. That railroad no longer exists. It is the uh, victim of a combination of neglect by successive domestic governments uh, in uh, Ghana uh, of the railway system uh, and uh, the disastrous policy adopted by the international financial institutions in the 70s and 80s well into uh, uh, the late uh, 90s and, and beyond of a failure to invest in infrastructure in Africa. Many of you will remember that infrastructure was not uh, uh, the fashion uh, in, de in developmental circles uh, during the 80s and 90s. Indeed, that only came to be reversed uh, after uh, the uh, UK's Africa Commission report in about 2005 and in the phase two of growing competition from China uh, for uh, uh, Africa's uh, uh, resources and investment by China uh, uh, in infrastructure. Only then uh, uh, did the policy begin uh, to, to, to change. So the cost now uh, of exporting uh, cocoa, transport costs uh, uh, in, in Africa are notoriously high and the links that existed which were able to promote intra-African trade as a result, say, uh, of the rail link that used to run regularly uh, between, uh, I take this as an example, Dakar 
and, uh, and, and, and Bamako. Anyone who's been to either of those uh, cities recently knows and who has attempted to travel on that uh, uh, rail, railroad knows what a sad uh, uh, reflection of its past glory uh, it, it now is. All of those things have impacted on transport costs and intra-African trade uh, on uh, the uh, uh, continent. And it was a source uh, of uh, uh, horror, frankly, uh, to my uh, grandfather to, uh, as he grew uh, older, uh, to find that more and more uh, he, his farming was, was crippled uh, by uh, the associated costs uh, of, uh, of, tr of, trans of transformation. So my experience uh, teaches uh, me that if we are serious uh, about growth in Africa, if we are serious about combating poverty through uh, that, uh, uh, that growth, then uh, we need uh, to reassess uh, our approach both to research, development, science, technology, higher education, and to uh, infrastructure and building human uh, capacity uh, on uh, the uh, continent. You will know Pliny's uh, classical maxim, there's always something new uh, out uh, of Africa. Uh, that maxim had uh, a basis in fact uh, as the most cursory examination uh, of uh, the Timbuktu uh, archives and libraries uh, so foresightedly uh, preserved and invested in uh, by President uh, Mbeki as part of a AU-led uh, response uh, to uh, the uh, issue uh, of uh, Africa's intellectual uh, uh, history as a cursory examination uh, of those archives and, libra and libraries uh, reveal. But indeed, you can go back even beyond uh, those uh, times uh, to see evidence uh, in uh, East Africa dating back to some 2.3 uh, million years before Christ of early man and his development uh, of uh, early tools, and then you go through the Nilotic, uh, through the Nilotic period uh, and, and after to see that science and technology and innovation in Africa isn't something that somehow never existed. It's one of the great myths uh, uh, surrounding Africa that this was essentially uh, a, 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 a sort of a land of, 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 of forests uh, and of uh, primitive peoples uh, to whom tools uh, and science and innovation were, were strangers. And it always uh, amuses me when people uh, talk uh, about uh, the continent uh, as if Egypt uh, and the Kingdom of Kush were not part of Africa. Uh, but actually, if you think about it, uh, all too often that is the reality of how Africa uh, is, uh, is perceived. And somehow it's all right, it's all right uh, to talk uh, about primary education uh, uh, in Africa. That's, that's good uh, and that's safe. Uh, but to talk about the need to invest in higher education and tertiary education, that's somehow actually, well, elitist and divisive. Excuse me. Uh, I don't know uh, of any uh, uh, nation 
that has achieved economic success and progress without two things. One, a strong agricultural base, and I'm going to come to that uh, in due course. And if you look at the Asian tiger economies, all of them, without exception, uh, uh, have had uh, a uh, basis uh, in uh, agriculture, with the possible exception uh, of Singapore, which has its own very unique position uh, as, as, a, as an island port, but also, and significantly, without, uh, without investment in higher education, science, and technology. Those two things have always gone hand in hand, and yet those are the two things uh, that uh, the uh, decades uh, before the one we are currently in saw actually a positive underinvestment in uh, on the part uh, of uh, the donor uh, community. Uh, and the time has come uh, to, uh, to intensify uh, the move away from that. The good news is, is that there is a move away from that that I think we need to uh, uh, recognize in developmental circles. Uh, but the Millennium Development Goals don't actually provide uh, a stimulus for investment, uh, either in infrastructure, in science and technology, uh, or in uh, agriculture. Uh, and that's something that we need to revisit for the post-2015 uh, uh, agenda. And I would argue that institutions like the uh, LSE uh, are uniquely placed uh, to champion the sort of partnerships that ought to exist uh, between academic institutions north and south and between academic institutions and grassroots communities uh, if we are actually uh, to achieve uh, uh, the uh, goals that we uh, set ourselves and in Africa's and if Africa's potential is to be realized because what I have learned in the course uh, of uh, my life uh, not just from <laughs> both sets of grandmothers and grandfathers and from my own parents, but what I've learned uh, from my uh, long sojourn uh, uh, in uh, local and central uh, government is that uh, the politics of transformation are too serious to be left to politicians alone. And that if you don't actively engage movements, people's movements, if you don't actually engage civil society, if you don't actually seek to create partnerships between uh, uh, diff different, uh, the different sectors and groupings that make up uh, uh, civil, uh, civil society, then actually you don't bring about uh, the transformation that we all so earnestly seek. I'd just like to say, if I may, uh, a few words about the practicalities, the nuts uh, and bolts uh, of, uh, of innovation. Uh, and, uh, and, and growth. And I think we need actually to confront uh, this uh, reality and it's uh, uh, I think something that the, the World Bank when, uh, in, when Dr. Ngozi Onkonjo-Iwela was uh, a managing director before she became uh, uh, the finance minister uh, of uh, the World Bank and sadly unsuccessful candidate for the presidency of uh, the World Bank. I say sadly uh, because uh, I think we must uh, not just hope and pray but work towards a situation when they all carve up, frankly, uh, between Europe and the United States for leadership of the world's uh, financial 
uh, institutions uh, ceases, uh, because quite frankly, it is not uh, something that is uh, conducive uh, to ensuring that we have in place the international financial architecture uh, that we need uh, to bring about uh, the uh, global reforms and to address the current imbalances uh, that exist uh, in, in our world. But uh, Ngozi highlighted uh, the extent uh, to which uh, we have uh, a real issue uh, around investment in research and development uh, in, in Africa. Uh, she did some uh, work that demonstrated that with the exception of South Africa, which invests 0.9% of its GDP in research and development, R&D intensity in the rest of sub-Saharan Africa is generally less than 0.3% of uh, GDP. Uh, furthermore, the potential for private uh, sector contributions to bridging uh, financing uh, gaps uh, is hampered uh, by the high uh, business risk attributed to the cost uh, of doing uh, business uh, in, in Africa. So you have uh, a, a situation which is urgently uh, in need uh, of uh, redressing uh, if we are to uh, achieve uh, that which we seek to achieve uh, in uh, the field of growth uh, uh, in sub-Saharan uh, Africa and in integrating the sub-Saharan African economies into uh, the global economies in ways that uh, are beneficial uh, to uh, those uh, uh, countries. Now, what does this actually mean uh, in, in practice? Uh, it means uh, recognizing uh, that the targets that have after all been set by the Africa Union for investment uh, in uh, research and development need to be given uh, real priority uh, by African finance ministers uh, as they set their domestic uh, uh, agendas and as they uh, address the issue of the distribution of resources uh, between uh, different uh, budgets uh, in uh, those uh, uh, countries. The UN Economic Commission uh, for Africa has done some uh, important work uh, in uh, this uh, area that has identified a failure to invest in research and development, in science, technology, and innovation uh, as having led directly to the underutilization of educated young people uh, on the continent, an underutilization which politically uh, has potentially destabilizing uh, consequences uh, as we have seen uh, recently uh, on uh, the uh, continent. So much work uh, to be done there, much work to be done too in making uh, R&D and STI, uh, innovation rooted in science and technology, uh, a viable option. Because where you have neglected intellectual property protection, then it doesn't actually become viable uh, to uh, invest uh, scarce resources, energy, and time uh, in science, technology, uh, and uh, innovation. Now, Ghana, along with Botswana, Kenya, South Africa, and Zimbabwe, stand out in having uh, raised uh, 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 the uh, issue 
uh, of intellectual property protection on their national parliamentary agendas uh, by revising uh, their uh, patent legislation. This, uh, uh, those countries uh, uh, did uh, in the 1990s and early uh, 2000s, but many have not uh, done so and have not addressed this issue at all uh, since uh, the uh, 50s. Uh, with uh, the result that although African nations are signatories uh, to the Paris uh, Convention and the World Intellectual Property uh, Organization Convention, the Berne Convention, very few, uh, and Kenya, Mauritius, South Africa, join the Club of the Virtuous in this area, have taken their necessary steps to see that intellectual property offices are active, well-staffed, uh, and, uh, and equipped and that the necessary patent information is readily available and used uh, by uh, researchers. So when you look at the continent as a whole, it produced in the period between 2000 and 2004 only 633 uh, uh, patents uh, compared uh, to uh, the uh, sum in excess uh, uh, of uh, uh, of uh, uh, 8 million that were produced uh, worldwide. That's the extent, that's the extent uh, of uh, the paucity uh, of innovation and science and technology as protected by patents in Africa compared to the rest of the world. But that isn't, of course, to say that there's not much being done that is actually innovative in Africa. Because the reality is that when you examine what's actually happening on the ground, when you look at what farmers are doing, they are very often in the forefront of agricultural uh, innovation. Uh, you can take also some very interesting uh, uh, examples that we see uh, in the field of information technology, uh, the development of the Mpesa system uh, in, in Kenya. Uh, of mobile phone-led money transfer, that's something that originated in Africa. That is something that was a, was a technological and regulatory development that occurred in Africa. So innovation is happening, but, it's, but it is not happening in ways that are protected and promoted uh, by the actions uh, of African government, governments uh, or, or donors. And again I say that there is a role for institutions of higher education, uh, uh, such uh, as the LSE, but beyond, to play in partnership uh, uh, with uh, their counterparts uh, in Africa in actually sharing uh, uh, information, in sharing uh, skills, in sharing developments uh, in the commercial uh, development uh, of spin-offs uh, and, and the like. And this, again, is not something uh, that can be uh, left uh, to uh, uh, governments uh, uh, alone. Now, as I begin to draw my remarks to a uh, conclusion before we move into what I hope is going to be uh, a dialogue, uh, I want to touch on uh, one particular area where I think there is a need uh, for uh, urgent uh, action and that is to uh, develop uh, with uh, you uh, some uh, thinking uh, about uh, agriculture 
uh, and the role uh, of uh, agriculture in Africa uh, in the light uh, of uh, the uh, MDGs. Because this is uh, a year in which G8 leaders under the US presidency will be meeting in Chicago. They will be marking the end of the three-year L'Aquila Food Security Initiative, which was agreed by the world's leaders uh, of the uh, G8 powers in 2009. They have to measure progress in fulfilling the 22 billion US dollar pledge that was made to assist uh, the promotion of agriculture and global food uh, security uh, at uh, uh, that uh, time. In uh, June, uh, uh, in Mexico, the G20 will be uh, meeting uh, to uh, build on the uh, efforts made last year to tackle uh, pr food price uh, volati volati volatility and food security within the framework of green growth. And again in June at the Rio Plus 20 meeting, 20 years after the, uh, the Earth's uh, first uh, Earth Summit, world leaders and NGOs and the private sector will have a platform to debate how green economic tools and improved governance can deliver sustainable agricultural development, food security, and poverty eradication. And as they do so, they will face the stark reality that on the ground, the facts demonstrate that it makes a huge difference when you do invest in agriculture. Agriculture is the dominant economic sector in Africa. It comprises 30% of GDP and over 70% of employment. We know that with the growing demand for food crops from emerging markets, agriculture has sufficient uh, and, and significant added uh, growth potential to justify uh, significant investment. We know that a $1 increase in agricultural value added generates $1.3 to $1.8 increases in the rural non-farm economy. And that overall, GDP growth originating in agriculture is two to four times more effective in reducing poverty than growth generated outside agriculture. So the case for a renewed focus on agriculture as an engine of development and as a means of promoting uh, food uh, security is, in my view, unanswerable. Uh, and already in Africa, some exciting things are happening in terms uh, of improving uh, yield. Uh, in uh, Ethiopia, uh, average maize uh, yields have increased uh, from 1.8 tons per hectare to 5 tons in East Africa. Breed improvement and other techniques have helped over 1.8 million farmers to achieve uh, higher uh, milk yields. So we don't have to scrabble around for uh, the evidence. And we have uh, at uh, these uh, upcoming meetings an opportunity to make uh, a significant uh, step uh, forward if we choose to make it. Uh, and we have to face the reality, I fear, in our own country that 
over many years uh, and in the course of my own uh, government stewardship uh, of uh, uh, the Department for International uh, Development, agriculture was in fact neglected. I mean, that's just part and parcel of uh, our reality. Uh, inexplicably and inexcusably, but it was uh, neglected. So that in fact, uh, if you look at uh, bilateral spending on agricultural programs in sub-Saharan Africa, they amounted to little more than 20 million or 0.35% of the total DFID budget uh, of 5.7 billion. So that really is, a, is a, a, in many ways, a, a, a grotesque uh, a, a figure. And of that sum, just 13.7 million is spent on the least developed uh, countries. Now, the good news is that that is changing. Uh, and Andrew Mitchell has uh, done a very good job in giving now a renewed uh, focus uh, to uh, DFID uh, on, on agriculture. But it needs support, it needs encouragement, and it needs pressure in order to develop uh, a, a momentum that delivers uh, on the continent. And Britain is well-placed in terms uh, of its own agri-industry, agri in terms of its own agricultural uh, colleges, in terms of its own uh, uh, developed uh, retail uh, market and expertise to assist in this process. And it's not just, again, and I return to this, it isn't just, again, a question uh, of what government does, of what others do. We, by our own market decisions, can make a difference. I make no apology whatsoever for saying that when you go into uh, Asda's or Tesco's or Waitrose or Lidl, wherever, whatever, or Morrison's, whatever your supermarket of choice is, express a preference. You know, ask where the bananas come from. Ask when you see Ghanaian bananas uh, 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 or Kenyan uh, avocados one week and then they disappear. Uh, ask where they are. Say how much you enjoyed them. You know, it, 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 at the end of the day, it is, it is what we do as players, uh, as, uh, as players in the market, as well as political players, as well as people who are able to influence events in our various occupations, it's what we do that also makes, makes, makes a difference. And I think we have an opportunity to make a difference here, and we uh, should uh, uh, do so. And the Millennium Development Goals, uh, and that which follows them, uh, need now to reflect uh, this new set of priorities. And they need to be rooted in a framework that is developed from within Africa and the developing world itself. So they're not top-down uh, as the old MDGs were. The old MDGs emerged from an opaque process that came out of the Secretary-General's uh, office in the UN. Uh, the result is clear. They've made some, uh, they've made and helped us make some progress, but they have also been bedeviled by a lack of local uh, ownership uh, and therefore have been less effective than they might. So much uh, to do. Uh, and as we do it, uh, I think we need to think uh, of the values that need to inspire us as we do what needs to be done. And I talked earlier on about my Achim uh, grandfather, 
and my own background in the Gold Coast and in Ghana. We there share with uh, a number of our neighbors uh, the uh, Akan tradition, the Akan folkloric tradition uh, that has produced uh, something we call the Adinkra symbol. Uh, and I just ask you as I close, when you have a moment, not necessarily now, although you have the technical capacity to do it, Google Adinkra. Google Adinkra. Google the symbol of the crocodile with uh, two heads and one stomach. The crocodile with two heads and one stomach is a manifestation uh, of uh, a, a can proverb, uh, which is this uh, in the vernacular. Funtun funefu, denchem funefu. Funtun funefu, denchem funefu. And what that means is that though there are two heads and one stomach, they are able, if only they knew it, to cooperate. And when they cooperate and they do not fight, then all benefit. The crocodile in our tradition is a symbol of plurality, of a capacity to live and breathe on land and in water. The crocodile with two heads and one stomach becomes also then a symbol of unity and diversity and the benefits of cooperation. For when one eats, all benefit. There is no need to be in competition. There is no need to engage in a process that is destructive. That it is possible for there to be mutual benefit through cooperation and partnership. That there is strength in plurality and diversity. And I think if those values, those cultural values, those spiritual values, integrating the spiritual and material, if they underline our approach to development and the post-2015 agenda, then we've got every chance of seeing the huge potential that is Africa realized in our lifetime. Thank you very much. Perfect, yeah. So we have, <laughs> we'll take three questions and then answer them three questions. Please be very brief. We don't have much time, on 20 minutes. And I can see a lot of hands up. Right. Yes, ma'am. Um, could you comment on the conflict of interest that some of our Western nations face when they encourage um, the, the, the continent of Africa to develop, whether agriculturally or technologically? Um, and then, of course, then this undermines their own uh, exports their own development. Yeah, I was going to say, um, like, there's been African leaders in the past which have tried to help the continent, and it's been the West which have like taken them out, and they wanted the benefit for Africa socially and economically. Like, 
are those things are they changing Could you say something a little bit about the uh, political situation in Africa and how, how that may be encouraged to create uh, the environment, the stable environment for the kinds of changes that um, you know, are really possible? Thank you. Yep. Let me actually begin with that because if you look at where Africa is uh, politically, you will see that we have witnessed in the past 10, 15 years uh, a marked change. The Organization of African Unity has become uh, the Africa uh, Union, uh, a policy of uh, non-intervention uh, has become now a policy of non-indifference. Uh, so if you take uh, the recent events in Cote d'Ivoire uh, and in, in Mali. Uh, the Africa Union was uh, active uh, in its response uh, to uh, the situation on the ground when there was perceived to be, uh, and there was and is in the case of Mali, uh, a threat uh, to a, a democratically uh, elected uh, government. Similarly, if you look at the increasing role of the Africa uh, Union in terms of peacekeeping uh, and the willingness on the part of Africa's uh, leaders, and it begins to address the point that you rightly make, uh, to themselves stand up against uh, the, a uh, fellow leader who's not doing the right thing. And you take Sudan as uh, a case uh, in point. You take uh, the willingness uh, of the Africa Union to put its troops and its resources, very often not actually as well supported as they might be uh, by the UN and ourselves, to put them uh, in the front line. When you witness the increasing demand of African civil uh, society uh, to, be, to be heard and an, a lack of a willingness any longer uh, to allow the vampire elites uh, which have all too often preyed, frankly, uh, on uh, Africa and their own people uh, and entered into cozy deals with those who would, uh, externally, who would exploit uh, the continent uh, and, and, and its people. Uh, there is now a much stronger civil society response. So even in difficult situations, and let me give you an example. The situation in Zimbabwe is difficult. It's complex. It isn't uh, as clear-cut as the British media would sometimes uh, suggest uh, that uh, it is. It's a complex situation. If you go to Harare now and you read the newspapers, you will find a breadth of opinion uh, and a degree of courage uh, on the part uh, of newspaper uh, editors uh, and, uh, and writers. And I think that's indicative of something that's happening across the continent as a whole. So it's not just now that there are more elections uh, and more fairly free elections uh, than there were. It's not just the shining and outstanding examples uh, of Ghana and its last uh, election when some tens of thousands of votes 
divided uh, the two main presidential candidates, but there was uh, a willingness to accept uh, a, a disputed uh, uh, result. It isn't just events in Kenya around the constitution. Kenya looked into the abyss and stepped back, and Kenyan civil society asserted itself against and along and in conflict sometimes with its political elites in the way that has not happened in the past. So I'm, I'm heartened by those examples uh, of uh, good, uh, uh, of, uh, good uh, 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 governance, of the 70% of the elections that have been considered to be free or partly uh, free by objective uh, uh, indicators. I'm heartened by that, but I'm even more heartened by the evidence on the ground uh, of a willingness to embrace uh, the sort of reforms that are necessary if you're, able, if you're going to promote growth uh, uh, on, uh, uh, on the continent. Uh, the sort of macroeconomic reforms that are necessary, the sort of regulatory reforms that are necessary, building up the capacity for revenue collection within the continent. All of that important. All the more reason, therefore, why uh, we should not um, stand idly by while the European Union seeks to impose economic partnership agreements on African countries uh, that may serve the interests, and this is where the point that is made from the audience about conflict of, of interest uh, comes into play. The economic partnership agreements, uh, in the view of many in Africa, are more designed uh, to promote the EU's vision of what is good for Africa uh, than Africa's own sense of its need, for instance, to trade with itself. There are aspects of what is proposed in relation to the economic partnership agreements and southern Africa that actually work against regional integration. And one thing that we know is that there is a greater need for intra-African trade and the promotion uh, of tariff-free uh, zones and non-tariff products within, within, within Africa. Now, all of that requires uh, that African leadership and African governance be up to the task. I think there are some positive signs. I think, however, that we can't uh, be um, complacent. That's why I'm a strong supporter of, the, uh, of those initiatives. And the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative is a classic example that are about saying that it's not enough simply to leave it to government and the private sector. You've got to have civil society engaged in order to make sure that you're able to trace uh, the revenues uh, from extractive industries, that you're able to hold both the companies and the governments to, uh, to account. And I think our role in the UK, both in actually challenging some of the EU thinking on the economic partnership agreements, as successive UK governments have done, and Diffie deserves credit, and, the H and Her Majesty's Treasury, Treasury deserve credit for the way they've worked together with the Foreign Office on those, uh, on those issues. We need to be ensuring uh, that we have not just that sort of voice uh, presented by, by Britain uh, in this uh, area, but also, and importantly, Again, British civil society do what it has often done very well in the past and did with the Jubilee debt movement, uh, be active players in this. 
you know, the, the, for, the forgiveness of debt, HIPIC, didn't come about because we as politicians one morning woke up, looked ourselves in the mirror and said, wouldn't it be nice to forgive the debt of the poorest countries in Africa? It happened because people in, in Britain, uh, in rural and urban Britain, uh, of all faiths, of all colours and all classes, got together and started literally holding hands uh, around uh, conference centres. That's what happened. And that woke the consciousness of, of politicians and helped create the consensus that emerged, first of all on debt and now on the level of development assistance in this country. So we have to keep making the arguments. We have to keep making the arguments that say that we are all part of this crocodile with two heads and one stomach. And that when Africa eats and when Africa grows, that creates markets for our services even though it may require us in some areas uh, to accept some pain and some sacrifice. But actually, our future, uh, particularly in view of the current imbalances in the global economy, and this is very much your area, Prof, that our future de demands that Africa grow, demands that Africa be increasingly uh, a, a player uh, in, in global markets as a, as a way of rebalancing those markets so that we ourselves have a sustainable economy. Without Africa, uh, I don't believe, and without Africa fulfilling its potential, I don't believe that our own prospects are as good as they would otherwise be. Can you take another one more round question? Can you start from the back there? Yep. <laughs> yes, thanks for that most inspiring um, delivery. My, my dilemma is that you mentioned the Millennium Development Goals mm. post-2015. What in your experience, having been to um, Southern Africa on the west side, in terms of infrastructure, food security, and sustainability, what, in terms of your personal uh, experience, how can Africa come out to, to, in terms of challenges and deliverables to come out of yeah. that, uh, what you call, unsustainable, um, the goals that have been set by the Western OECD countries and has yet to be even acknowledged in terms of its practicalities. How do you think in your experience that Africa can come out of that uh, vacuum of disenfranchised and on what we call the austerity in that sense of the word, for lack of a better word? Thank you. My name is Richard Sunjogi, and I'm from the Labour Campaign for International Development. Um, what I'm quite keen to know, what I'm quite keen to know, is what do you think is the role, especially of the African diaspora, diaspora, um, in improving Africa's situation, especially when you look at the fact that remittances sent back home to Africa. Um, very much you know, of much greater value and effectiveness in developing than money given through aid. Is somebody here? Hi, you spoke today about the role that uh, policymakers have um, with regards to science and technology investment. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if I could push you a little bit more 
with regards to the role that the private sector had to play in terms of job creation in Africa. Because if you move towards a knowledge economy and there are no jobs for the, the people, then you'll have a situation like we do currently in Spain where vast majority of the population who are in their 20s, 30s are emigrating. Would that not just fuel the same problem? Thank you. Okay. The MDGs and the post-2015 development agenda. Britain's going to play a very important part uh, in the development of the post-2015 agenda. And I think Andrew Mitchell uh, needs to hear and will hear and will be, I happen to believe, open to hearing uh, from Africa's own leadership that this is a process that can no longer be regarded as being one that can be left to a top-down process. And I was myself present in Addis Ababa just a few weeks ago with the UN Economic Commission for Africa and was able to witness myself uh, African finance ministers debating the post-2015 agenda. And they did so on the basis of some very good papers uh, produced by the UN uh, Economic Commission for Africa and the Africa Union Commission. And I really do uh, urge you, if this is an area of interest for you, uh, to, to Google them and to, and to print out uh, the note that was prepared for the high-level panel discussion on articulating a post-2015 MDG agenda. Because what that discussion and the note of it reveals very clearly is that Africa expects to be uh, consulted and part and parcel of the process of setting uh, the framework and uh, the goals and the measures by which those goals will be achieved uh, for the post-2015 agenda. Uh, and I just take three areas that they themselves uh, have, uh, have identified. Promoting transformation and sustainable growth, and they have seen as measures to achieve that, prioritizing, and they answer a number of points that have been raised here, employment creation, promoting rural development, promoting value addition, of primary commodities and resources, ensuring food security, promoting expanding trade, markets, regional integration and investment, prioritizing sustainability and support of green economy initiatives. Uh, very important. Promoting education and technological innovation. And again, investing in secondary, tertiary, and vocational education. Promoting technology transfer. Investing in R&D. Then promoting human development. And under human development, they've got gender parity, empowerment of women, protecting human rights and ensuring justice, and importantly, equality, because the MDGs don't actually deal with the issue of equality at all, uh, promoting access to social protection, promoting maternal and child health, support and empowering the elderly and the disabled, prioritizing disaster risk reduction and climate adaptation initiatives. Now, these uh, goals and the measures came from a consultation that the finance ministers and the UN Economic Commission had across Africa with African civil society. Now, this is a new way of doing things. And what we need to do is to make sure that Britain is one of those voices saying, we must heed this, and we've got to act uh, accordingly. 
Uh, we, we've got to actually, you know, as a country, a, a, a track record in the main to be proud of in this area. And I've got no reason to believe that we, we won't, with sufficient engagement on the part of us all, we won't be able to continue uh, uh, that uh, uh, track record of actually being on the side of, of ensuring that Africa has a voice. The great strength of the Africa Commission that was one of the positive things to come from the relationship between uh, the then Prime Minister and the then Chancellor, where on this issue they were at one. It wasn't always the case, but on this they were certainly at one. One of the great strengths of the Af Africa Commission was that it was majority African, African membership. You know, uh, Westerners uh, uh, and Easterners were in the minority on that commission. Uh, the majority membership was African. And that's a very, very, and it was rooted in a grassroots consultative process. And it's very important that we, that we cling to that. And interestingly enough, and I was present at this meeting, one that was convened by President uh, Wad uh, uh, in uh, uh, Senegal, was a recognition that as part of the AU, there is a specific constituency entitled Diaspora. So he convened a meeting of the Diaspora, and I attended that meeting, and it played directly into our consultation on, on the Africa Commission. So we need to support the AU in its own efforts to engage the Diaspora, but we ourselves also need to recognize that conferences are all very well but actually there are two areas where I think uh, we as diaspora, whether in the UK or in France or in the US, wherever we are, there's, there's stuff we can do. First of all, we can become direct agents of development by links with our own ancestral communities and our own uh, schools or parents' uh, schools. In terms of my own uh, school, and as this is going out on podcast, let me name it, Accra Academy, Bleo, as we say, and there's no reason why you should know anything about that, but if you're on Accra Academy, old oh boy or oh girl, you know what that means. Now, we, we ourselves take responsibility for the maintenance and upkeep and investment in our school, and generations of Accra Academicians continue to do that. I think we need to do that. Uh, there are some fascinating, and I bump into people in the street all the time, not just diaspora, but friends of diaspora who have direct relationships, whether it's through the mother's union, through the church, through the trade union, through the chamber of commerce, have direct relationships with communities in Africa. I was in Marlborough. You know, this is uh, deepest, uh, richest Wiltshire. I was in, in Marlborough uh, last week. They have had a relationship that ext extends for 30 years with developmental issues around, around the Gambia and generally in relation to the Brandt Report in Africa and are developing a relationship now with Swaziland. This is the community in, in Marlborough. And I can take you if, you, if you go to Brighton, when I was High Commission in South Africa, uh, they are, there's a women's group in Brighton, in Sussex, that has a relationship with a women's group in East Brighton, in the Eastern Cape. You know, th this is happening all the time. And the diaspora have a very important role to play as part of that and in terms of their own uh, uh, community uh, 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 organizations. And when we, when we do that, uh, I think we, uh, we, we address uh, those issues 
uh, that need to be addressed, and we ensure through our own links with the private sector to deal with that question, we ensure with our, through our own links with the private sector that we are waking up those private sector institutions of which we are a part uh, to the opportunities that are presented uh, in Africa. The private sector is going to be and is a major driver of development and growth on the continent. Frankly, one of my concerns about the MDGs as they are currently constituted is that they don't create the space for the private sector uh, to promote uh, FDI, to promote partnerships uh, with uh, local uh, uh, players, uh, and create, create jobs. They are too top-down. They are too uh, much geared towards creating, in some instances, uh, a culture of dependency. Uh, on donors uh, that we need that we do need uh, to fight again i think that's i think that's changing uh, but we need uh, we need also to enable the private sector to have a in britain to have a greater sense uh, that the risk that is in, exists in africa is manageable because time and time again when i go to private sector conferences on this uh, in this area and when i work with the private sector as i do in this area I find a, a degree of unwillingness sometimes to take and manage the risks that do exist when you operate in emerging markets. And very often we are leaving the field, frankly, to those from uh, Southeast Asia, uh, from India and elsewhere who are less risk adverse than ourselves. Uh, and I think we've got to overcome that uh, in Britain because the private sector does have an important, important role, role to play and is beginning to play it. Three more, then I've got a dash or I'm no, in you trouble. I'm, I'm not sure you want to make it. It's, it's okay. 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 <laughs> but someone's got to pick up. I feel rather guilty. Okay. I'll, give some, I'll give very short answers yes. to three very quick questions. Yes. I'm Richard Strange. I edit food security. Ah, great. Um, and I'm very interested and delighted to hear what you said about the importance of agriculture. I would like you to comment on the role of women in agriculture in Africa because they're often discriminated against. One factor, one fact. Seventy-five percent of land is done by women. They only own ten percent of the land. Yep. Yep. You want one more? Okay. You don't have much time. Are you no. Do my best. Yeah. Anybody? You mentioned uh, the Afro-optimism and. Um, at a state level, what are the initiatives? For example, the capital flight from Africa and the brain drain. Uh, these have, I think, direct impacts on science and technology or the weakness or the strengths of the institutions. So without those um, solution or affecting that, I don't know how we can overcome the lack of science and technology innovations. Uh. One more. Can I take one more? Okay. Yes, one more. That's, then that's it. There was someone there. Yeah. There's a woman directly in front. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I can hear you.
I think, let me begin with that first. Yes, it is being looked at. And I, increasingly now, when I go to Africa, I find that they, the governments, and I've seen this in Ghana, I've seen it in Kenya, I've seen it in South Africa, uh, the, gov the, the governments actually have specific initiatives that are designed to engage with the diaspora who have left for whatever reason and to engage with them in ways that recognize that people are not just simply going to uproot and come back uh, so that you are creating opportunities for them uh, to come back as, and taste it and see. You're creating opportunities for them to come back on terms that recognize that they have families to support who may not have come back with them. You are creating opportunities too, and this is a direct answer to your question, that for instance uh, have been utilized very effectively in relation to the uh, Japanese uh, uh, diaspora, where in MIT, uh, in, in Boston, they've created a hub that uses the Japanese uh, American uh, diaspora uh, as an innovators, as a focal point for connections with innovators and uh, the industry in, in Japan. And similar ones exist in relation to, to, uh, to uh, Korea. And there's recently been appointed an MIT, an African, who has exactly the same brief, namely to recognize that there is an African diaspora who are not necessarily going to go back, but who want a connection uh, with their home country. And universities and, and, and institutions of learning that can create wealth in both countries through creating innovative links that actually promote innovation and development. Because the reality, part and parcel of the reality of globalization is that, and technological development, is that you can now, through the wonders uh, of uh, the internet, iPads and uh, whiteboards and the like, uh, you can create instantaneous communities uh, that can operate in ways that previously would have been unthinkable to generate wealth creation and ideas in quite separate locales. And we have to have this capacity to imagine how it can be different. And in relation to the issue of gender, I mean, it's interesting, the African finance ministers specifically identified gender equity as an issue. Uh, when you've got women like Ngozi in positions of leadership in Africa, it changes things. When you've got uh, people uh, like the president of Liberia, again, another former managing director of the World Bank, excuse me, when are we gonna wake up and smell the coffee? These women are not only African assets, they're international assets, and they should be used internationally. Uh, and, you know, we just have to, we have to begin to change the realities on the ground. And we do that by recognizing that this is not an issue of political correctness. This is an issue of survival and success. Uh, gender is not an optional extra. Uh, these, these things are absolutely crucial to imagining a new Africa. And if we can imagine a new Africa, then we can imagine a new world. And look at the current state of the world, we need to imagine a new world.